As we take a few minutes this morning uh, to study the Word of God, I'd like to begin uh, by uh, praying and asking for God's help. Um, as, we, as we handle His Word, we want to do it carefully, uh, and, uh, and I want to do it rightly, and so I think that's a good place for us to start. So let's pray, and we'll ask God's help as we examine His Word. Heavenly Father, thank You again today that um, You have given us a standard of truth. The, the, the pure, inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. This book that we have, we, we desire to know. Not just to know the Word, um, but through the Word of God to know you. Lord, we want to see and understand you fully, as fully as we can. And we want to understand uh, us, ourselves. Lord, we realize that we are dependent completely on you for that. that. We need your truth to be like a light shining into our hearts, exposing the darkness of sin. <clears throat> strengthening and giving grace to enable us to be obedient, to believe. And I pray that we would do that today. I pray that you would give us uh, the ability to understand and to receive the truth today. I pray that you would help me as I speak. Lord, I want to honor you. And I do not want in any way to build up myself. Lord, I pray that I would be your instrument today to be used by your hand that your people would hear the truth and respond as sheep who know the voice of their shepherd. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever noticed how selfish our society has become? I mean, those millennials, they are so selfish. They expect everyone to cater to them. Ugh. They want immediate and constant affirmation. Have you noticed that? Everybody's always got to tell them how good they are all the time. They don't want to do anything hard. They don't want to struggle for anything. They're completely unreliable and they expect everyone else to you know, take up the slack. Now please don't get angry with me and storm out. You'll just prove my point. But now, now, now for those of the rest of you who are laughing and silently agreeing with me, nodding your heads... E, at least within your own mind, if you didn't do it out loud. Um, let me just say this. The baby boomers are the most self-centered generation I have ever met. I mean, they act like they deserve to be catered to at every turn. Like they've earned the right to demand that everything be done their way. I mean, they have a lot of money and, uh, I mean, relatively speaking, and they certainly have seniority and they think that entitles them to call all the shots. Totally selfish. Now, I, I, I can't leave out that forgotten generation, the Gen Xers. You guys are always complaining about how you're left out of every discussion. The boomers have made you wait for your turn, but they won't get out of the way and let you lead. If they would just, I want to say die off, but that's uncharitable. They just get out of the way. Then along come those millennials because, well, you know, there's twice as many of them as there are of you. They have more influence and they exert all the influence you've waited for all these years. The whole time your focus has been on getting what you want and now you feel like you're being passed over. You're totally selfish. Don't get me started on Generation Z. By the way, that's all of the, the young people who are age 18 and under here today. Totally selfish. Now, did I leave anybody out? I don't want to leave anybody out this morning, okay? I don't want to forget anybody. Ladies, totally selfish. Men, no, totally selfish. Kids, totally selfish. Parents, totally selfish. Church people, totally selfish. Pastors? Yeah, totally selfish. Guess which uh, respectable sin we're looking at today? Yeah, the, the, sin, of, the sin of selfishness. Uh-oh, Sam, it's not working there. The sin of selfishness. Did you get it that time? There we go. The sin of selfishness. Now, Jerry Bridges, I think, is completely right 
when he said that selfishness is a difficult sin to expose because it is so easy to see in someone else, but so difficult to recognize in ourselves. Each one of us could probably spend hours talking about how selfish other people are. But when we think of ourselves and and talk about ourselves, we, we assign to ourselves the purest of motives. I'm not a selfish person. I have good reasons for wanting all of the things that I want and wanting things to be the way that I think they should be. I'm not selfish. I really want what's best. But then we look at others and we can easily read a sinister motivation behind their actions. Oh, they're just being selfish. It's very difficult for us to see our own selfishness. This is why, of course... I say, of course, I hope you know this by now, for those of you who have been here for any length of time. This is why we must examine what the Bible teaches. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that God's Word is living and powerful. That it is a, a, like a two-edged sword that pierces our soul and our spirit. And it discerns the thoughts and the motivations of our hearts. And so rather than talk about others this morning, let's take a few minutes to examine how selfishness hides in our own hearts and our own lives. Now the Bible uses several terms to describe this, the sin of selfishness. I want to give you a few of them so you can see how they're used. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul warns about the danger of selfish ambition and conceit. You can see it here. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Edward read this verse just a few minutes ago. The selfish ambition here, that word describes someone who is only concerned with immediate gain. It's actually a word for a day laborer. Someone who is only focused in life is on what is... Uh, is, is of immediate gain. This is someone who is self-serving and short-sighted. And conceit here in this verse uh, refers to empty boasting. The desire to build oneself up at the expense of others and at the expense of the truth. And so this is one of the terms the Bible uses, this idea of selfish ambition, total self-focus. Only concerned with what gets me what I want right now. There's another term later, in fact, in the same chapter, verse 21, Philippians chapter 2. Paul speaks of those who seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. These are, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. These are people who live only for themselves. And, and this term, uh, this idea is, suggests that they follow their own interests. They follow their own agenda through life. That's all that they're, they're, they're preoccupied with themselves. They're seeking their own. They're seeking themselves. That's where their interest lies. Another uh, reference from the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 15 and verse 1. Paul says there, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. That term, please ourselves, is contrasted in this passage, and we'll look at that in a few minutes, but it's contrasted with the idea of pleasing God and pleasing others. And so again, this idea that the person who is self selfish, self-focused, is only concerned with pleasing themselves. What pleases them? They're not concerned, ultimately, with what pleases God or what pleases others. I think the most powerful term the New Testament uses to refer to the sin of selfishness is, is the Greek word philautoi. You might, you might catch in that the, the same root as the word like Philadelphia uh, philos means, or philel means love. Philautoi means love of oneself. The word the New Testament uses to describe this. Uh, the, the philautoi are lovers of themselves. And Bridges explains it this way, and I think this is an excellent quote. He says, lover of self is a good description of a selfish person. 
This person is, first of all, self-centered. At its extreme, the self-centered person cares little for the interests, needs, or desires of others. To be a lover of oneself is to be unconcerned with the needs, the desires, uh, and the interests of other people. But only to be concerned with oneself. what, What you want. And I have to say, this is not something that exists, again, just out there. It's so easy for us to say, oh yeah, yeah, I see all of these things. I look around in my family. I look around in the church. I look around me and I see all of these things around me. Absolutely. I can point these out everywhere. That's not our interest today. Something, these, this issue, this issue of selfishness is something that exists in each and every one of our hearts. Even those of us who've been born again by faith alone in Jesus Christ. We can't say, well, I've trusted in Christ, therefore I don't have a problem with selfishness anymore. No. It's a very real problem in most of our lives. In fact, I would go so far as to say this, and I think this is true. That, the, that most, if not all, of the relational conflicts that we experience are a direct result of the sin of selfishness. Not in the other person, but in you and me. Because it's really quick for us to say, again, when a conflict comes up between us and someone else, they're being selfish. It's really easy to do that, but, but I don't want us to go there. I want us to stop and say, you know what? The reality is, the vast majority of the time, when there is conflict between any two people, the problem is that I am being selfish. Most of the conflicts within the church are the result of our selfishness. We're selfish when it comes to our interests and our time. How does that look in the church? Well, when we're selfish with respect to our interests and our time, it means that we don't, uh, we don't uh, help. We don't serve in ways that we could. We don't serve in the church in ways that we could serve because we're just not that interested. Or we just, again, we don't have time. The reality is, again, in many cases, it's not that we don't have time, it's that we use our time selfishly. And then we don't have time to serve. But we all have the same 24 hours in a day and seven days a week. Nobody has more. The reality is, oftentimes we are selfish when it comes to our interests and to our time. And that shows up in the church. We just don't serve as we could and as we ought. We're selfish when it comes to our money. And so we don't give what we could and when we could. And needs go unmet. Or we're selfish when it comes to thinking of others. This kind of selfishness is when we are just inconsiderate. We show up late. And we keep others waiting. Or we, we see problems in the church and we, and we point out problems in the church expecting other people to fix the problems that we point out in the church. Rather than realizing when we see the problem and we can point the problem out, we can also engage in helping to fix the problem. Or we express our own opinions. But we do so without thinking about how they will make others feel. And so we're inconsiderate in the way that we speak. Because we, we care more about our opinion and sharing our opinion than we do about how what we're going to say and how we're going to say it is going to affect someone else. These are all just a variety of ways. There's many more I'm sure we could come up with. But these are ways the sin of selfishness wreaks havoc within the church. And I started with the church, and I'm focused on the church just because that's who we are, and we're here today gathered together as a church, so I wanted to speak about that. But, but really, we could do the same thing if you wanted. Go through your home, your family, your marriage, your job, the marketplace, your community, 
And we could identify all of these areas and more in which selfishness breeds conflict and trouble and where we, where we struggle with this issue. I don't have time to go into all that. You're going to have to think through that yourself. How do I apply this in my home, in my marriage, in my life, with my children, uh, with my parents? How do I apply this at work? How do I apply this in, in other areas? You're going to have to think about that. I, 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 but I'm just trying to give you some examples. Because I want you to understand that selfishness is a real problem. And it's not just a problem other people have. It's a problem each one of us needs to face. So the question is, of course, what does the Bible say about this sin? And then what can we do to address it? And that's really what I want to just just focus on. Two simple kind of questions I would like to answer today. What does the Bible have to say about the sin of selfishness? How does the Bible speak to this sin? And then what does the Bible tell us we can do in order to deal with this sin? How can we address it in ourselves and our relationships? So I want to just look at a few passages uh, that discuss this, and I'll just invite you to turn with me there. We're going to look at several of them. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, so we're going to be turning to several passages today, so kind of be prepared to move a little bit. I don't normally do this, but today is an exception. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul writes this, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Wow. The Apostle Paul is speaking to Timothy, who's a young pastor in the church at Ephesus. And he's warning Timothy about the distressing days that are going to come. Not at the end of time. I know he says in the last days. You might be tempted to think, oh, he's talking about the very end of time, right before Christ comes back, right before the world ends. No. It's this very age in which we live that Paul is speaking of. He refers to it as the last days, but he's talking about these days. Men will become increasingly sinful and corrupt and given over to wickedness and evil. But notice the very first term that Paul uses to describe men during this age. There in the first or in the second verse. Men will be lovers of themselves. The sin of selfishness is a prime characteristic of men and women who reject Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. He says much the same in the book of Romans. You can turn with me to Romans chapter 2. This is not just an isolated thing. Romans chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says, Romans 2 verses 5 through 9, But in accordance with your hardness... And your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Notice, everyone's going to be judged according to their deeds. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But in those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Again, the constant attitude of selfishness is evidence of an unregenerate heart, Paul says here in Romans 2. The person who is constantly self-focused is living like an unbeliever. They may not be saved even if they claim to be. And so the first thing that we need to understand about the sin of selfishness is this, that it is characteristic of unbelievers. The sin of selfishness is characteristic of people who are not Christians, 
who are not saved, who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, have been forgiven of their sins, who have not received the, 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 the regenerating power of God's Holy Spirit to give them new life. We talked about this last week in Romans 6. They're ones, they're ones who have not yet died with Christ and risen again to new life. And therefore, they are unregenerate. They're dead in their sins. They're still bound in their sins. Selfishness is a characteristic of those people. There's a very powerful example of this in the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4. We read about two brothers, Cain and Abel. They were sons of Adam and Eve. The first people, of course, Adam and Eve, first people that God created, Cain and Abel, are their sons. One day... We're told these two brothers brought an offering to the Lord. Cain brought an offering of produce from the garden that he grew. And Abel brought a firstborn lamb or goat, doesn't say specifically, from his flock. The Lord received Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's. Now the reason for rejecting Cain's offering is, I think, often confused. But if we read the context of Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7, I think it shows us why Cain's offering was rejected. The Lord spoke to Cain there about his offering. And he indicated that the problem was not Cain's offering. The problem was his heart. That he had an unrepentant and sinful heart. And and the Lord warned Cain. In fact, he said to him there that, that sin was waiting to pounce on him and dominate him. I mean, the Lord came to Cain and he warned Cain about the danger of sin in his life and what what Cain was doing in his own sinful heart. But Cain refused to hear God's rebuke. The next thing we read is that sometime later, he lured his brother Abel into, into the field and he murdered him. What's really interesting is Cain's response to the Lord. After that, the Lord came to Cain And he asked Cain a simple question about where his brother Abel was. And Cain first said, I do not know. That was a blatant lie. Then Cain responded with this question. You may have heard it before. Am I my brother's keeper? Think about the meaning of that, the significance of that. Am I responsible for him? Why should I have to worry about him? i got enough to worry about myself. You see where Cain's focus is? Cain's actions here, his murder, was an ultimately an act of selfishness. This is Cain demonstrating the, the, the heart and the mind and the life of an unregenerate person, a person who does not know the Lord, who doesn't uh, a believe in God does not have any spiritual life in them. Cain was only concerned with himself, his interests, his status. And, and because of that, it drove him to murder his brother. And then his defense for his actions was, I'm not responsible for him. I do realize that most of us would not go to this length driven by our selfishness. Most of us would not commit murder today. But that does not change the fact that selfishness is a primary characteristic of man's rebellion against God. And when we as Christians act, think, or speak selfishly, we are acting just like the unsaved world that rejects the authority and the word of God. This is, that's why this is such a serious thing. Because when we start acting selfishly, we start acting just like unbelievers. It never surprises me when an unbeliever acts like an unbeliever. You know that? I just had a conversation with my wife about this the other night. Unbelievers acting like unbelievers doesn't shock me a bit. I don't find anything shocking at all in that. But it always bothers me when believers start acting like unbelievers. When we're selfish, that's what we're doing. Now, there's another point to be made with respect to the nature of selfishness. And it's this, that I want you to understand that the sin of selfishness is almost never, almost never, I think that's, that's right, it's almost never committed in isolation. The sin of selfishness leads to more kinds of sin. It's never alone. 
We already read this in 2 Timothy 3, men being lovers of themselves, the first characteristic, and then that leads to the whole list of, of wicked and evil sins that Paul describes. Greed, arrogance, blasphemy, rebellion, ingratitude, immorality, slander, brutality, a hatred for that which is good, treason, and the endless and empty pursuit of pleasure. All of that follows on the heels of their self-focused life, their love of self. But there's other biblical writers that speak to this. James chapter 3, if you'll turn there. James chapter 3. We read also here about this sin of selfishness, but James warns us here about it. James 3 and verse 13. James asks this question, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice how you can tell if your wisdom comes from this world and not from God. Notice what he says here. If you have envy and self-seeking, in your hearts. This is an indicator, James says, that your wisdom is not from God, that you have worldly wisdom, that you have embraced the world's kind of thinking and the world's kind of approach. And of course, he's writing this to Christians. And he's saying, what you need is God's wisdom. You need to embrace God's wisdom and and live according to God's truth. But as long as you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, you're not living according to God's truth. And so it's an indication of a, of a, a, a problem in your thinking and your understanding. But notice according to verse 16, what he says there. Envy and self-seeking are not ever alone. He says that when there is envy and self-seeking, there is also confusion and every evil thing. The word confusion there means disruption or turmoil. It's exactly what we said before. That selfishness leads to conflict and disorder. Broken relationships. And all sorts of foul and wicked business. Is it any wonder that our world tells us constantly we need to look out for ourselves? We need to make sure that we get what we deserve. We need to fight for our rights. And so on. And then this same world is filled with conflict, with anger, with discord, with all sorts of wickedness and immorality. We shouldn't be surprised if we encourage selfishness and then we reap conflict, hatred, insults, and injury. And I say that in the church because we see this within the church as well. The push for a very self-focused kind of Christianity. It's about me getting what I, what I want. Me having the kind of life that I want. Me uh, having my best life. God giving me what I desire. Everything becomes about me. It's all focused on me. And what happens? Then when we begin to focus on ourselves, when we begin to be selfish and self-focused, we have conflict. We have all of this strife. And that's what James says. Anytime there's envy and self-seeking, it always is accompanied by conflict, turmoil, and evil. So we cannot, we cannot encourage uh, self-focused kind of thinking, self-desires. Uh, Make sure you get what you deserve. We cannot give that kind of uh, encouragement and then expect to have peace. In fact, James identifies there in verse 17, the wisdom that is from God, the contrast here. It's pure. It's peaceable, it's gentle, and listen, willing to yield. It 
that willing to yield, that strikes right at the heart of our selfishness. I can't yield because I'm right. I can't yield because I know best. I can't yield because... James says the wisdom that's from God is willing to yield. See, I'm getting ahead of myself into the solution here. Still trying to look at the problem here. Another example is found in the book of Proverbs. This one may surprise you, I don't know. Proverbs 18 and verse 1. Proverbs 18 and verse 1. Oops, that's Psalms. In Proverbs 18 and verse 1, Solomon makes an interesting connection here, talking here about the issue of self-seeking. Notice what he says. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. Solomon, in this verse, draws a connection between two things, selfish desires and isolation. He's speaking here about people who deliberately disassociate themselves with others. They separate from the rest of society. They break off relationships. They they, they keep others at arm's length. One writer calls them social hermits. Because they isolate themselves from meaningful relationships with others. And there are a lot of people like this today. There are a lot of professing Christians like this today. They claim they can have a meaningful relationship with God without having to interact with other Christians. Without having to be a member of a, of a local church. Pastor Dan Phillips, uh, in his uh, Proverbs commentary, put it this way. Perhaps one can now just watch DVDs of sermons. Listen to MP3s, blog, tweet, email, Facebook, or take an iPod packed with sermons to a mountain glade each week. This desire to pull away from others and seek God in isolation is not wise. In fact, according to, according to the Word of God here, Proverbs 18 and verse 1, it is raging against all wise judgment. To put it as simply as I can, it is sin. This, this, this desire for isolation, this desire to keep other people out and to, to keep oneself from being too close to others. If we begin to, to break off relationships and keep people out just so that we can have this comfort of isolation, we refuse to uh, be... In, involved in the lives of other people. We refuse to let other people be involved in our lives. And when that's our thinking, it is sinful. It is foolish. It is raging against God's wisdom. God calls us to show genuine love for one another by serving one another, by showing hospitality and building relationships centered on our mutual bond of fellowship in Christ. And that's all throughout the Bible we're taught that. Solomon says here it's self-seeking that causes a man to isolate, causes a man to, 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 to reject that, uh, that kind of involvement in other people's lives. It's the sin of selfishness. Clearly the sin of selfishness is a major problem. It's characteristic of unbelievers and spiritual rebels. It's not, and it should not be a characteristic of those of us who are children of God by faith in Christ. And so when we act selfishly, we are not acting like what we are. We're acting like what we used to be. To use the analogy I gave you last week, we're acting like an adult who's trying to go back to be a child. We're acting childishly. As if we could somehow revert, but we can't. We need to be who we are. That's why the sin of selfishness needs to be dealt with. And and on top of that, it leads to other serious sins that wreak havoc in our lives and our relationships. But again, the question then comes back, how does the Bible say we should deal with this sin? And is there any way to avoid it? 
Is there anything we can do preemptively to, to try to, to keep this sin at bay so that it doesn't take root in our lives and begin to, to, uh, uh, to, to wreak havoc in us? Well, since the sin of selfishness is really about loving yourself, seeking your own interests and pleasing yourself, it makes sense that the, 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 the problem at its root is a problem of focus. Where are we focused? Where is our attention? Where is our, uh, the center of our, of our life and our thoughts? Selfishness is fundamentally about being focused on yourself excessively. And therefore, the solution is going to involve a change of focus. And there's two directions that the Bible says we ought to be focused rather than on ourselves. So first of all, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 15. We'll spend the rest of our time together here in Romans 15. But first of all, we need to learn from the example of Jesus Christ. We need to look at and learn from the example of Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says in Romans 15, verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul talks about this also in Philippians 2, the passage that Edward read at the beginning of our service. In both places, Philippians 2 and here in Romans 15, Paul sets up Christ as our model. He's our example. He is the prime example of unselfish service. Here in Romans 15, what does Paul say about Christ? Christ did not please himself there in verse 3. What does he mean by that? His focus, Christ's focus, was not on getting what he wanted. And it was not on elevating himself. It was not on being noticed. And it wasn't on being respected or valued. See, these are all the kind of self-interest ideas that we embrace. And we deserve to be respected and valued and and, and well thought of and all of these things. And and Jesus didn't, didn't seek any of those things. And because of that, he was able to fulfill the meaning of Psalm 69, verse 9. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's what Paul quotes here. Psalm 69. Reproach here is the word that means defamation or slander. So I want you to think about this for a second. Have you ever had someone slander you? Someone speak falsely about you and, and, and criticize your motives or, or, um, or assign motives to you that were not really yours? Have, has that ever happened to you? Anyone slandered you before? That's what happened to Jesus. He was called a blasphemer against God. He was called a liar. He was called an arrogant and boastful man. He was someone who made friends with disreputable people. And he was crucified like a violent criminal. Why on earth would he endure that if none of it was true? Why didn't he defend himself? Very simply, Paul says, because he wasn't out to please himself. His attitude becomes more clear if we keep reading verse 4. Notice what he says there. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying here? Jesus' motivation was a desire to glorify God the Father. That's Jesus' motive here. That's what Paul says. That's why he brings us to this. This is the focus, he says. Jesus sought not to please himself, but he desired to glorify the Father. And Paul says, guess what? You, as a Christian, you should have the same desire. You should have the same mindset that Christ had. To bring glory to God, who is our Father. Now here's a really, really challenging question. Are you willing to suffer reproaches? Defamation, slanders even, 
Jesus was. Because he wanted more than anything to glorify God. Right? His focus was on God's glory, not on pleasing himself. Was he mistreated? Yeah. Will you be mistreated? Well, I got news for you. If you haven't figured this out so far, yes. At some time in your life, you will be mistreated. If you haven't been yet, then I don't know where you've been, but somehow you've escaped for way longer than you should. I'm just saying, it, it happens. It's inescapable. If you're living in this world, yes, you will suffer uh, mistreatment. You will be wronged. You will be slandered. You will have people assign motives to you that are not your motives. You will have people say things about you that are not true. That will happen. Where's your focus? See, Jesus endured all of those things. He didn't defend himself. The reason that he did that was he was focused not on himself, not on pleasing himself, but on glorifying God. And so if you want to deal with your own selfishness this morning, if you want to see that sin put to death in your life, and more importantly, if you want to prevent the sin of selfishness from growing and, 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 and its power from spreading in your life, then you need to seek the glory of God above all else in your life. Make Him the, the center of your, your heart's desires. Let everything in your life revolve around pleasing Him and making Him known. When you choose to live for God's glory, rather than your own glory, rather than your own desires, your own interests, then you're going to reject selfish thoughts. You're going to reject selfish words. You're going to reject selfish actions. And you will gladly bear reproach for the sake of His name. And I, and I say that because we have example after example after example throughout the history of the church of men and women who were gladly slandered and abused and reproached and mistreated because they stood for the name of Christ. And all they cared about was glorifying God. By the way, it's just a, a, maybe a, a, another application of this or another aspect by which this, this connect, can connect with our lives is this, that, that a desire to glorify God and not please ourselves is what motivates us to, to, to preach Christ, to proclaim the gospel. I mean, I think as Christians... Most all of us know that we ought to be sharing the gospel with other people. We ought to be telling other people about Christ. We ought to be seeking to win other people to Christ, neighbors and coworkers and friends and family members and all that. We ought to be doing that. But just knowing that we ought to do it and actually doing it are two different things. But... When we focus on the glory of God and glorifying God above all else, that motivates us then to go out and to share and to preach Christ to the lost. Not because it's easy. Certainly not because we'll be well received for doing it. But because we love God. And we want to please Him. We want to glorify Him with our lives. And so we'll be moved to go out and tell the lost. Again, we look at the example of Christ. And what we see when we look at the example of Christ and we watch His example, when we meditate on Christ and we focus on Him, we realize that, that He lived for the glory of God and not to please Himself. And then we too ought to live for the glory of God and not to please ourselves. And so I want to encourage you to, to, to meditate on the example of Christ. Again, as Edward read Philippians 2, Jesus uh, uh, humbled Himself and He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus' death on the cross for our sins was a rejection of selfishness. It was a refusal uh, to, to, to think of self. Jesus went to that cross bearing our sin, not for his own uh, interests, but because he was demonstrating the love of God for us. Romans 5.8, John 3.16, there's so many passages that speak of that. There's another aspect or another area that I want to consider. The Bible tells us we ought to focus in order to avoid or deal with the sin of selfishness. 
And it's right here in Romans 15 as well. Back in verses 1 and 2. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Paul tells us that again, if we're going to deal with this sin of selfishness, we've got to look for and meet the needs of others. We've got to look for and meet the needs of others. Now this is placed here in a direct contrast with our own tendency to want to please ourselves. That's verse 1. We want to please ourselves. Instead of pleasing ourselves, what does Paul say? We ought to please others. We ought to please our neighbor. Talking here about our fellow Christians in the church. Now it's important because I want us to understand this rightly. Um, When he says that we let each of us please his neighbor, he's not saying this. Just do whatever your neighbor wants you to do. Um, I mean, if we were to to kind of take that and take it to its extreme, then you have to do whatever anybody else in the church wants you to do. Well, how, how does that work when one person wants you to do something and the other person doesn't want you to do that thing? Then who are you supposed to please? So he's not talking about that specifically. In fact, he qualifies here what he means by this. I mean, we we certainly can't overlook the context. I wish we don't have time, but you can go back to chapter 14. In chapter 14, he talks all about the fact that we as Christians have liberty to live before God without having to worry about what everybody else thinks about us because we answer to God and not to others. But at the same time, he says we have the responsibility to live in love toward one another so that we don't cause others to sin by exercising our liberty. So it's a complicated subject. We don't have time to get into all that. Paul summarizes it in verse 19 of chapter 14, when he says that we ought to pursue peace and building up one another in the Lord. And that's what he means in chapter 15, verse 2, when he says, let each of us please his neighbor. Then notice, for his good, leading to edification. So in other words... Pleasing your neighbor doesn't mean just doing whatever your neighbor wants you to do. Constantly being at the whim of everyone else. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is do what is good for them. Do what serves to build them up. See. The fact of the matter is that may sometimes not be well received by your neighbor. See. When you come to your brother or sister in the Lord and you confront them and you say, you know, I, I see that in your life there's some sin that you may not see. And I, I just, I, I want you to know I'm concerned for you and I want to help you to understand this is wrong and you need to do what's right. Your brother or sister in the Lord may not exactly welcome that confrontation. Most of us don't really like to be pointed out when we're doing wrong. But that's doing what's good for them, right? Looking on the interests of others and being concerned for them, building them up. There's there's a desire to look for them and and to see their needs. So sometimes that's going to still be challenging. I'm not saying this is always easy. But what I'm saying is Paul tells us that we are not to let everyone else make decisions for us. But what we are supposed to do is we are supposed to be thinking about how we can build up others, how we can do what is best for them rather than pleasing ourselves. So when it comes to how we ought to live with one another, in our families, in our community, and of course in our church, Paul says we ought to be more concerned with the needs of others than we are with our own. Again, in the same context of this passage, Christ is the example. He set the example for us. And there are lots of opportunities for us in the church, in our families, in our homes, at work, and all around us for us to live out an unselfish attitude toward others. For us to look at and see the the needs that others have and see the concerns that others have and see where others need to be built up instead of focusing on ourselves to go about the business of building them up, to go about the business of helping them, of meeting their needs. So a good question you might ask yourself today is, who is there today 
Who is there here in this room that I could please by building up rather than just seeking to please myself? Who is there that I can build up? Who is there that I can minister to? You're here today gathered with God's people. Surely there is someone you can serve. And in so doing, you can begin to put to death this sin of selfishness in your own heart, in your own life. The question is, will you seek to please God by pleasing others? Or will you only please yourself? Now as we close, I need to touch on one other point. As we saw earlier, the Apostle Paul identified selfishness as a trait of those who are unsaved. And so it's important for us to ask ourselves whether the selfishness that we see in our lives today is evidence that we are not truly born again. I don't say that to make you doubt whether or not you're a Christian. I say that because it's important for us to examine ourselves routinely. Romans 2, we already touched on, but there in that passage, Paul says there are really only two types of people in the world. By the way, that, when, when I say two types of people in the world, I don't mean selfish people and unselfish people. Because Paul says, no, 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 that's not it. All of us are selfish. The two types of people in the world are this, repentant selfish people who desire to glorify God, and unrepentant selfish people who are self-seeking and disobedient to the truth. That's the distinction Paul makes in Romans 2. There are either selfish people who have repented and are seeking to glorify God, or there are selfish people who are still selfish and continuing on in their rebellion against God. So the Bible tells us that if you repent of your sin, you will receive mercy from the Lord. But if you are stubborn, if you are hard-hearted, if you refuse to submit to the Lord, then you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. And so the question I have for you this morning is simply this. Now that you know you're a selfish person at heart, what will you do? Will you admit that you have a problem with self? Or will you defend your self-love? Repentant or unrepentant? Believer, unbeliever. Receives mercy and forgiveness. Stores up wrath for the day of judgment. See, that, that's the contrast. Will you submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord? Or will you harden your will against Him? Today, I encourage you to humble yourself, to turn to God, to cry out for mercy, and you'll be saved. Let's pray.